0: Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts always be acceptable in thy sight. For thou art our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Happy Mothering Sunday. Um, The rest of the world celebrates Mother's Day today. Did you know that? At least the rest of the English-speaking world. Um, Mother's Day in the Anglican Communion in the... uh, Tradition is uh, celebrated on this day because we are halfway through Lent. We've just celebrated the Annunciation of our Lord, so Jesus' conception told to to Mary by the angel Gabriel, and we're celebrating that new life. In today's uh, passage, we're also celebrating new life, though, aren't we? Um, Jesus' parable of the prodigal son is perhaps one of the best known with good reason. With good reason. We can look at this parable from lots of different angles, and I'm sure you have if you've read it numerous times. It's one of those pieces of scripture that is inexhaustible. Um, We can look at it from the side of the wickedness of mankind, the wickedness of humanity, rebelling against God. We can look at it Uh, from the perspective of the entrapment of sin and how sin can be alluring and draw us away from all that is good and trap us. It's it's a cruel thing. We can look at it that way. We can look at it from the perspective of the hardness of heart that the older brother has. Right? When the younger son returns and he can't stand the fact that the father is celebrating over him. We can look at it from the heart of God, the extravagant love that's lavished upon those who don't deserve it. We can see it from that perspective too. Today I wanna look at it from a different perspective than all four of those. I wanna look at it in light of confession. You know, historically, there's four pieces to confession. There's contrition, to be contrite and to lament your sins. There's confession, to speak out loud those things that you've done. There's satisfaction, there's a demand for justice. And finally, there's absolution or forgiveness. Those are the four traditional pieces of confession, whether it's done with a priest or on your own. Contrition, confession, satisfaction, absolution. Open with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 15, verse 11, and we'll look at this together. Luke chapter 15, verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. We know the story begins. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me a share of the property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Stop there for a moment. You may have noticed that today the first lesson insert uh, was not what was read. I I chose to change it to Deuteronomy chapter 21. And the reason I did that is because this is what every Jew would have thought at this point, as Jesus is saying this. You know, it's sometimes it's hard for us in the 21st century, and even as Christians not as familiar with the Old Testament, to understand. What would have popped into the minds of Jesus' listeners. But this is what would have popped into the, the mind of the Jews as they hear about these two sons. It's not just about the second son coming to his father and asking for a portion of his goods. That's not what's going on, or at least not that alone. But if we look at Deuteronomy chapter 21, and if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to it and put a marker there because we'll be looking at it a bit this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 21. We see this in verse 15 that there is this inheritance practice in the ancient world, particularly in the Hebrew tradition. And verse 15 of chapter 21, we see that God instructs that if there's two wives, and the one loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him children, if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, that on the day that he assigns his possessions as an inheritance to his son, he may not treat the son of the loved as the firstborn in preference to the son of the unloved, who is the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge him as the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has. For he is the first fruits of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his." So what's going on here, right? In the ancient world, obviously, there's uh, multiple wives, right? Polygamy is, is, uh, is accepted. Um, we already see sin tainting that, right? Tainting God's created order. Um, we also see that sin creeps into those relationships, right? So you've got the tainted order, uh, the, the, the man having more than one wife, but also you have God, you have the man rather, um, playing favorites with his wives. And you know how this would work, right? Just think about it for a minute. A guy has his favorites, and the first son is in danger of being cut out. He's the firstborn of the first marriage, but his mother has fallen out of favor with the husband, and so the husband's playing favorites, listening to the other wife. Trust me, this does go somewhere. (laughs) So, what God is saying here is that the firstborn gets basically a double portion of all the father's assets. For his inheritance. So if you have two sons, that means the firstborn gets two-thirds of the assets, and the younger son gets a third of the assets. Does that make sense? No. But it makes sense in the ancient world. You see, in the ancient world, not only did the firstborn get two-thirds of the assets, or the double portion, it would change if there were more children. But he also had the responsibility or the duty for carrying on the father's lineage, the carrying on the father's business. Because remember, the father of the Old Testament, the patriarch, was not just dad. He was dad, the boss, the employer, the governor, the ruler. So that was passed down by firstborn. And with that that rule came the responsibility to care for everybody else in the household. Okay? You following? So God is saying that the firstborn gets this double portion of the assets so that he can care for the rest of the family. Now with that in mind, thank you, TJ, with with that in mind, um, thank you, if the younger son comes to the father and says, as we read in Luke, give me all of my inheritance that is mine, what's the younger son doing? He's doing a lot of things that are improper here. Not only is he throwing off the older son and his rights, but he's going to his father and saying to him, I want your inheritance. You're as good as dead to me, Dad. Cash out your life insurance now and give me my third, Dad. Sell your property and give me my third of my inheritance now, Dad. Do you see what's going on here? It's not without pain that the father does this. Think about that for yourselves, if if you're older, if you have children. What would that look like if someone wanted their inheritance now? And what would your response be? The father does it. The father does it. According to the Jewish law, this double portion is set aside for the older one, but the younger one still gets a third of the assets. The theologian Peter Chrysologist, Bishop of Ravenna, writing in 380, says this. He says, the son is impatient as his father is kind. He is weary of the father's own life. Since he cannot shorten the father's life, he works to get possession of the father's property. He is not content to possess his father's wealth in company with his father, and he deserved to lose the privileges of a son for asking what he asked. Should have been the end right there. Refer to Genesis or refer to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 21. He could have been taken out and stoned. That is what was going through the mind. Of the Jew that heard this parable for the first time. We continue with verse 13 of Luke. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to the citizens of that country who sent him into these fields to feed the pigs. The younger son doesn't take his inheritance and even do something good with it. He takes the inheritance and blows it, essentially. He spreads it. The actual Greek word is dyskripizo, which is the same word that's used to throw up grain to separate the chaff from the grain. It's that idea, throwing money in the air, throwing money around, we might say in today's English. If it was for sale, the young man bought it, pleasures of all kinds, fulfilling his desires, wants fulfilled. If the older son is to believe, in verse 30, even buying girls, prostitution's not outside of this, right? He's throwing his money around, and he goes from the top of all lavish living down to being completely poor to be a servant of a Gentile. Don't miss that. This isn't just any other employer, but it's something who is, in the Jewish worldview, unholy. He's in his employment as his slave, unclean. And not only that, but what's he doing? Again, think of yourself as a Jew. What's the job that this this, uh, young man's put to? He's feeding pigs, an unclean animal. But even the pigs are eating better than him. Even the pigs are eating better than him. He, he longs to eat the pods that the pigs are eating on. And Jesus uses a word here that uh, speaks about these pods. It's, it's a common thing in that, era, in that area and in that era for the poor to subsist upon. They were these little uh, pea-like things that were kind of sweet but not really nutritious. And you could you could live on them for a while but not very long. And so... The young man is surviving off of that and finally comes to himself. Look at verse 14 and 15. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need, so he went and hired himself. All right, let's jump to 16. Um, And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. Jesus highlights the fact that the man comes to himself. Do you see that? Verse 17, when he came to himself. Scholar R.C. Lenski, is a Lutheran scholar, writes this. He says, so the fancy gilding and the deception were gone, the galling disgrace, the deadly heartache were left. But there's good in the young man's suffering. The suffering, the pain drives him to come to himself. You know, so many times in our world, we look at pain as the ultimate wickedness, the ultimate evil that we can face, right? We try to take the pain away, whether it's physical or emotional or spiritual. But you know, pain can be a really good thing. If you touch the stove and you burn your hand and it's painful, what does it teach you? Don't touch the stove. I ought not to do that. And here we see the young man experiencing this disgrace, this pain, but it's that that drives him. Back to himself. It actually drives him to repentance. Yes, pain can be crippling, but pain can bring us to reality. I should stop doing this. It hurts. He came to himself and noticed that he had a clarity of mind. No one can do that for him, no one can make him come to himself, no one can persuade him to come to himself. He has to come to himself and see things as they truly are. But what's his option? Remember Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 18 reads this way. If someone has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him, his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders of the gate of his town and they shall say to the elders, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his town are to stone him to death. You must purge the evil from among you. All Israel will hear it and be afraid. Do you see, the son in his repentance has to face that reality. The son going back to the father just remaining alive is a plea for mercy. He, does, he, he doesn't just deserve to be disowned, but according to the law, he deserves to die for his actions as a disobedient son. And the Jews listening to this know that and would have struggled with the younger son in thinking about that. Why is it that the younger son says in verse 18... Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. This is why. This isn't just a broken relationship. This is a broken law. But they also know that God is eager to forgive. For example, the prophet Ezekiel writes this. In chapter 18, verse 23, "'Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked,' declares the Lord God, "'and not rather that he should turn from his way and live?' And again, in Ezekiel 33, 11, "'Say to them, as I live,' declares the Lord God, "'I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, "'but that the wicked turn from his way and live. "'Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. "'For why should you die, O house of Israel?' the Lord says. What we're witnessing in Jesus' story of the prodigal son is the story of our rebellion and sin, our repentance, confession, and restoration. But verse 17 is the hinge. It's the turning point of this coming to oneself and repentance that changes things and throwing ourselves on the mercy of the Father that changes things. Verse 18 is the act of contrition. You know what contrition is? Mourning and lamenting your sin. It's not just saying, I'm sorry. It's saying, this sin is wrong, and it should not be part of me, and I really feel bad about it, and I'm going to run away from it. That's contrition. This is his act of contrition. He he turns around, he comes to himself, and in verse 18, he makes that act by saying this. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Verse 20, And he arose and came to his father. Let's jump to 21. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. There is his confession. So now we have the act of contrition and the confession. But notice what happens in the meantime. Is the father hard and unwilling to hear? No. The father runs towards him. The father runs towards him, even before he confesses his sin, the father is there waiting to embrace him. And then he runs to his son, and he embraces him, and he hugs him, and he kisses him, and he puts a ring on his finger as a symbol of what, again, in this culture, what is the ring? It's a symbol of wealth. It's a symbol that you're part of the family again, that you've been restored, And so, in verse 25, we see the absolution. I'm sorry, verse 22, we see the absolution. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate, for this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. In this story, the firstborn cannot stand the fact that the father would take back the rebellious son. One scholar asks, in this story, who is really lost? Is it the younger son or the older son? But there's something else here, too. What's missing from the first four points of confession? The judgment, the judgment, the satisfaction is the technical word for it. The justice, who's gonna pay for this? Well, the father himself, the father himself. And how is the father to pay for this? Well, again, if you're a Jew, you're thinking of that end of Deuteronomy. Cursed is the man who's hanged upon the tree. What's Jesus doing at this point as he's giving this parable? We know from back in chapter 13 that he's on his way to Jerusalem. He's on his way to the cross, and he knows it. Jesus is the older son, not in this parable, but in the bigger picture. Jesus is the satisfaction, not here in this parable, but in the bigger picture. It's what St. Paul means when he writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, "...for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers." among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. Who is the satisfaction? Who makes this right? Jesus Christ himself, the man outside of the story, telling the parable. Indeed, it is the Father's plan in Jesus that the satisfaction will enact the Father's love in the parable. Jesus tells the story to show the depth of the Father's love for us and to give us that roadmap of confession, what it means to come to him. And it's not just a roadmap for those who have yet come to know him for the first time. It's a roadmap that we continually repeat, Right? We continually walk away from the Father. We continually fall into traps of sin. We continually get stuck. We chase after the flashy thing, the pleasure, the short-sighted advantage. So I ask you, where are you in this Lenten story? We're halfway through Lent, it's a good checkup point The story is not just for the person that comes to know Jesus, but if you don't know Jesus, friends, come to him. See how much the Father loves you. And if you do know Jesus, if you are part of the church, what part of your life are you eating with the pigs? What part of your life are you stuck in because of your pride? What part of your life have you cut yourself off from God's love because you think you know better or because you've got your inheritance and you're going to go and do what you want? What part of your life could be sitting at the table with the Lord and eating the fatted calf rather than the gross pig trough of peapods? May Jesus point out to us in this parable that the contrite heart is never an old thing. Confession is never something that we don't need to do. Repentance is never something that we can have done and never approach again. May it point out and soften us that in those things that we still withhold from God in ourselves, where we still wall ourselves off in a foreign land from the Lord, may it break through those things. May we have a contrite heart, a confessing spirit, and accept the grace of the blood of Jesus' satisfaction to embrace the Father's forgiveness. Would you pray with me? Lord, we give you thanks that your word is inexhaustible. We thank you, Lord, for this passage that many of us have heard time and time again. We ask, Father, that you would give us the ability to invite you in to repent and turn around where we need to turn around, to mourn our sins. Lord, let us, as we approach Easter be transformed by you and conformed more into your image. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.